Good morning, church. We're blessed to be able to come together in fellowship and singing of God's praises and looking at His Word together. I've been praying that our morning would be helpful for you and your faith. For those of you who are guests with us, rather than covenant members, we welcome you as well. We're glad that you're here. As a bit of an introduction for you, my name is Matt Kirstein. I'm one of the the elders, one of the pastors here at the church. Uh, Pastor Joshua most commonly preaches the word on Sundays, and yet he's on a sabbatical right now. We we have in our constitution or our bylaws uh, a planned break for the primary preaching pastor every so many years where he gets so many months away from these duties to have rest and recreation and more time with his family and more time studying. And so he's enjoying that time right now. Please continue to be praying for him so that he would thrive in that time and come back refreshed and eager to continue his duties here. We're blessed to have such a consistent, qualified, and, and capable preaching pastor in Joshua, so we're so thankful for that. It's my joy to bring the word this morning, so let's pray. Lord, we come humble, and we always need to remember that we deserve nothing good from you because of our sin, because of our fallenness, and yet. You are a gracious God, steadfast in love and abundant in mercy. And we are so thankful that you've chosen to pour out your grace on those that you will. And we are humbled by that fact. And in that, Lord, we we need a constant reminder to be turning away from our sin and turning to Christ and to true righteousness This morning, we have an opportunity to consider those things, and so we pray for clarity, for understanding, for perseverance. Pray that these verses, your truth, would be lifted high this morning, we would consider it together, and that you would cause real growth, real change in us. We love you, Lord. We are so thankful. This this sermon, this text is weighty, so we need your mercy upon us as we consider what it is to live a life of repentance for your glory. It's a weighty consideration, and so give us understanding. We can pray all this because of the work of Christ. Amen. The passage we read together earlier in our service is our focus this morning, Psalm 51. Now I must say that one sermon is not sufficient to see discuss and grasp all of the layers of truth and application in this chapter. Weeks could be spent mining the depths of this psalm. Hours and hours of sermons would be needed to cover everything there is to cover. So I'm not going to try to have us do what's not possible this morning. I'm, I'm not going to try to exegete every line of the psalm and We're not going to consider all of the history in and around the psalm. Instead, with Psalm 51, we're actually going to build on a sermon that I preached a few weeks ago. That sermon was on Psalm 130, and it was titled, A Song of Guilt, Repentance, Trust, Forgiveness, and Redemption. We're going to, what we're going to do this morning is consider with even more focus the topic of repentance. 
As many of you know, Psalm 51 is known as a great exposition on repentance. We covered some of the important points on repentance in my last sermon, but more needs to be said. In life and in general, in ministry, I've seen that there's a significant lack of biblical understanding of and the execution of true Christian repentance. Therefore, pastorally, I was motivated to spend time this morning with you considering the amazing truth in Psalm 51, the truth that it gives us, while also considering practical things, examples, and application. So this sermon will be a bit different than the last in the approach. The title of this sermon is a song of confession and repentance by the grace and power of God. So let's begin with some definitions and some explanations of repentance. We must realize that sometimes there is a need to define and explain our terms. For example, does the person that you're speaking to understand what Christians mean by repentance? There was a gentleman, a newer gentleman at our church some time ago, and him and I had had many of conversations um, in different contexts and settings. We discussed things. We discussed repentance I had mentioned and these kinds of things. And then we were messaging each other one day, writing back and forth. And, and he had sent me a message and just said, Matt, what is repentance? So it really struck me. I'd been carrying on a lot of dialogue, dozens of conversations with the, with the man. And, and yet I hadn't done a good job in clarifying what I meant. It took him asking for that clarity. And so it's a good reminder. to do, do people understand what we're saying? Are we trying to make sure that there's clarity in the words that we're using? We should use these theological words, but we should provide clarity. I mean, just look. The word itself has lost its place in much of today's culture's literature. This graph that will be on the screen here for you is from Google. And look at how they show... The word repentance has decreased in books in the last 200 years. The amount of times that word is used in in literature over the last 200 years. Look how much it's dropped off. So it shows us, again, this word's not as common. So we've got to begin by asking, what is repentance? I think it's important to state that there can be two ways, two main ways the word can be used. A non-religious way and a religious way. First, you may hear or use the word in a non-religious sense, meaning a change of course, a change in behavior or belief, a changing of one's mind, a change of of one's course of action. For example, I might say I, I ate a local fruit when I was traveling internationally that made me sick to my stomach. I regret that and I will not be eating that fruit again. I'm repenting of eating that fruit. You'll never see me eat that fruit again. There's nothing sinful about eating that fruit, but a change of mind and course is happening. It's repentance. This way of thinking or talking, using the word like this in common scenarios, isn't very common, as we've seen. It's dropped off quite a bit, but it's possible nonetheless. But what we are considering in this sermon is the more focused concept of repentance, the true religious sense, the Christian sense. This is regarding mankind's sin and the duty of righteousness in light of the one true God. What then is the meaning of repentance in this sense, in the sense that we'll use the majority of this sermon? You could say repentance is turning away from sin 
and turning instead to true righteousness in heart, word, and deed. Sometimes in Christian discussion, the word is used to describe initial repentance. This is when, according to God's will and power and timing, a person first turns from sin and trusts in Christ alone. This is conversion repentance. We see this, for example, Acts 2.38. And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus, for the forgiveness of sins. He's calling them to a conversion repentance, an initial repentance. Now other times, though, in Christian discussion, the word is used to describe the believers turning away from particular sin in their life. Instead, turning to righteousness, true righteousness. This would be included in a passage we saw previously, 2 Corinthians 7.10. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Calls and commands for God's people to repent of sin are all over Scripture. Martin Luther famously said that the entire life of believers is to be one of repentance. He is right in that we will never be perfect in this first creation. Therefore, we must always be turning from sin to turn to Christ and His good law. So we repent initially in the moment of salvation and we repent ongoingly because we still battle sin in this life on this first creation. Repentance is turning away from sin, turning instead to true righteousness in heart, word, and deed. Psalm 51 majors on repentance, so it is our focus today. With that, let's begin our study of the scripture this morning with an overview of the chapter and a short bit of context. A title has been given to this psalm. You can likely see that in your Bible. I encourage you to have your Bible out this morning. You'll see a title there before the numeric verses start. It, is, it says, To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. This gives us some context, which we will briefly consider now and mention throughout. The psalm is accounted to David. Many of you know the terrible account of David's sin the history of which is found in the 11th and 12th chapters of 2 Samuel. Theologian John Gill gives a brief summary. He says, David committed the grievous sin of adultery, and it was followed by other sins, such as murder of Uriah and the death of several others. David had a lack of conviction, remorse, and regret in him for a long time until Nathan the prophet was sent to him to awaken him to a sense of his sin, which he immediately acknowledged and showed true repentance for it, upon which either while Nathan was present or after he had gone, David penned this psalm that it might remain on the record as a testification of his repentance and for the instruction of such as should fall into sin, how to behave and where to apply for their comfort. Gil closes there with letting us know that God gave us this psalm to see for our benefit too. Consider also what Charles Spurgeon's comments. 
The title given to the psalm to the chief musician or to the choir master is therefore it's not written for private meditation only, but for the public service. When the divine message had awoken David's dormant conscience and made him see the greatness of his guilt, he wrote this psalm. He poured out this song with sighs and tears. Both these theologians state that God has given us this psalm as a gift. It should be publicly known, these words, David's repentance, and we will see that this morning. So let's consider now an overview of Psalm 51. It may be said that there are six main parts. First, a plea for mercy, for forgiveness. Second, a confession of personal sin. Third, a plea for cleansing. Fourth, a plea for inward renewal, a pure heart for restoration, producing real change, a new course. Fifth, a commitment to teach others about God and His mercy and to declare His praise. And sixth, a concluding plea for the blessing of God's people. We'll see these parts as we work through the passage this morning. So let's consider now the words of our text, at times referring back to David and at times with some pastoral exhortation. We're actually going to start with verse 3 and then come back to verses 1 and 2. Look at verse 3 with me, Psalm 51, 3. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Biblical repentance starts with conviction and confession of sin. So I want to begin our passage discovery considering how conviction of sin comes about. To be convicted of sin is to be thoroughly and rightly in agreement with God that our sin is sin and that it is our sin. But we considered in the sermon on, one, on Psalm 130 that fallen men do, do not naturally have a proper awareness of our own sin. We need conviction of sin, but we lack the ability to have a proper awareness of that. In some cases, it's because we love to play the victim, as we mentioned. We are experts at self-focused pity and blaming others. There is a constant need for fallen men, women, boys, and girls to be called to look correctly at situations and to look inward at our own sin, to be convicted by our own unrighteousness. Talk more about that in a bit. And in some cases, we do not have a proper awareness of our own sin because our standards are so corrupted that we choose in deception or in pride to not see all sin as sin or to not care correctly about the sin that we do see. In this, fallen man foolishly disagrees with God's law and disregards his truth. You see, in Romans, Paul teaches that God's law, the moral rule and standard that we must all follow, has been placed on the conscience, on the heart of all persons. And what can be known about God has been made plain to all people. We are without excuse in our foolishness. This is why even your unbelieving friend may still have a guilty conscience when he steals from his boss or lies to his child. The law of God is in the hearts of even non-believers, convicting them at times 
of their sin. But as we know all too well, because of the deceitfulness of sin, the law being on our hearts is not enough to cause fallen men, unsaved or saved, to obey God fully or even to see our sin consistently. Romans 1 tells us, for example, of fallen humanity claiming to be wise, we became fools. Because of the effects of sin, God's law is ignored, denied, or disobeyed, and our conviction of sin is not consistent. The law on our hearts in the here and now is not enough to consistently convict us. It does at times convict us, but consistent conviction. And it's most certainly not enough to cause true, full repentance in us. Therefore, we are desperate for the work of God in us. How does the true view of sin and conviction that we see in Psalm 51.3 come about? Well, God's plan involves us being utterly dependent on Him for true repentance. God is the one who works in us Conviction, repentance, and sanctification. According to his timing, God is the one who illuminates truth, the truth of the law that is in each of our hearts so that we are rightly convicted. Consider Philippians 2, 12 through 13. It says, My beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. It is God who works in us, causing us to will correctly and work correctly for his good pleasure. It is God who works in us. God causes true conviction. God causes any repentance we do. God causes any growth we have away from sin. We are utterly dependent upon God. The historic Christian statements of faith affirm this as well. For example, the 1689 Confession of Faith says in chapter 16, A Christian's ability to do good works does not arise at all from themselves, but entirely from the Spirit of Christ. To enable them to do good works, believers need, in addition to the graces they have already received and actual influence of the same Holy Spirit to work in them to will and to do for His good pleasure. Knowing, of course, that the saved are completely dependent upon God for our growth and righteousness, Jesus prayed for us in John 17. He, he called out, He pleaded to, to the Father, sanctify them, believers, in truth. Your word is truth. He pleads with God the Father, sanctify the believers. He asked God to do what only God can do. And look, look at the additional clarity it gives. Sanctify them, cause this growth and righteousness in the truth. Your word is truth. Our repentance unto righteousness, unto sanctification happens according to truth. Real truth. God's truth. Our repentance unto righteousness goes hand in hand with truth. There is an unbreakable link between God's truth and true righteousness. Repentance unto righteousness does not exist where truth, God's truth, 
real truth is not honored. Now, let's add a bit more detail to this. By His power, God can bring about conviction and repentance in a Christian through several means. Means are ways or methods. The 1689 Confession, again, rightly asserts that God, in His providence, makes use of means. God uses means. Various ways. Now, I want to mention some of these means because they are not all celebrated or welcomed. They should be, but sadly they are not. Some believers are unaware of or intentionally unwelcoming of some of God's design of these means. Know these examples. God may bring conviction for repentance and cause repentance in a believer through let's consider four things number one the holy spirit working to illuminate the truth of god in the study or preaching of god's word when you're in scripture reading god's word or when you're in a sermon hearing god's word oftentimes the holy spirit brings about understanding and conviction unto that truth god may cause conviction of repentance also through the holy spirit working to illuminate truth In prayer, we say often that prayer is not about changing God, for God does not change. But it oftentimes is about changing us. We're pouring out our hearts and asking Him of things and confessing things. Oftentimes the Holy Spirit illuminates truth that we've been taught before, that we've seen in Scripture, and realize, I need a change of heart here. Next, the Holy Spirit often works to illuminate the truth of God through the church's new covenant ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper. We had the Lord's Supper this morning. Perhaps during that time you're considering the gospel, you're considering your sin that sent Christ to the cross, and it is bringing conviction about sin that you're dealing with. And that the Holy Spirit can work conviction, can illuminate God's goodness and truth in such a way that you realize repentance needs to happen. Or maybe seeing a baptism, you hear the testimony of someone saying, I was this way and then these sins, and God saved me. He showed me my sin and caused me to see that he is righteous and I should long for him and long to be like Christ. And in that, we're encouraged in our own repentance. And finally, the Holy Spirit can work to illuminate the truth of God in Christian fellowship and brotherly accountability. It's an important one that we're going to talk more about. In all of these, a person can come to know what God's Word says and God convicts them to and instructs them through repentance. These examples don't make up a fully comprehensive list, but they are very important and worth considering on their own. But for the sake of time, we're going to consider the primary means that God used to cause David to be convicted and repent. In our passage, we saw David said, For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. But this wasn't the case immediately. David sinned, And then had some time in which he was not in a place of confession in this way and conviction like this. How did he come to this conviction? The title tells us, A Psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he sinned. We see this happen in the scripture in 2 Samuel. After David's sin, 2 Samuel 12.1 tells us the Lord sent Nathan to David. What we see here is that God used the means of another truth teller, the means of peer accountability. This was the fourth means I mentioned a moment ago. David committed many sins, 
And yet his conscience was not enough to rightly, promptly, or fully convict him. So God ordained the means of accountability to be what would finally break him in conviction. Church, this is so important. Invite, welcome the means of God that he's given. Invite and welcome fellowship and accountability. I mean, we say it all the time around here. We, we teach it from the stage, this pulpit. We, we train it in discipleship. We do it in our interactions. This is so important. God's means of fellowship and accountability is a good gift that we cannot skirt, avoid, or cast off. We should be so zealous in this good gift. Seeking out and welcoming accountability and fellowship to be known truly and to be encouraged in God's truths. Listen, there are way too many ways that our own evaluation of ourself fails us. So much that frankly, we're not even good at evaluating our evaluation of ourself. <laughs> you and I cannot see all of the ways that we sin, and then we can't see all of the ways our self-evaluation or self-conviction fails us. So God commands us to have proper, consistent Christian fellowship and accountability. God tells us this. Hebrews 3, speaking through the writer, verse 13, exhort one another every day. So that as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Exhort, encourage, admonish one another every day. So that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. God tells us that you and I are not good at self-evaluation. We need each other to bring the truth of God, to help in conviction, to help in repentance unto righteousness. This is not optional. And it's not a Disciples Church original idea. I hear often from people, well, I didn't really experience this kind of fellowship or accountability before. Really blessed by it, but it's just like just something that around here you guys really do. This is not a Disciples Church idea. We just see it in the text and want to live it out. It's all over the New Testament, commanded to God's people in various ways. Here's a sampling. Colossians 3, teach and admonish one another. Ephesians 4, speak God's truths to one another. 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5, encourage one another. Hebrews 10, stir up one another to love and good works. Ephesians 4, bear with one another. Romans 14, build up one another. Romans 15, instruct one another. Christian fellowship and accountability is commanded by God. It's God's original idea and it's a good gift. To believers. Now, consider carefully how are you doing in this? How are you doing seeking it out? How are you doing when someone approaches you, maybe, with a concern or counsel to share scripture with you and ask you about something or admonish you? Be honest with yourself here. Are you grateful and wanting to follow the authorities that God has given in your life and the wise counsel from others? Are you thankful for the admonishments when they come? It is high arrogance, pride, and foolishness to avoid, skirt, reject, cast off Christian fellowship and accountability. Proverbs 12, 15 
tells us this. It says, the way of a fool is right in his own eyes. But a wise man is he who listens to counsel. A wise man is he who listens to counsel. Church, we'll keep calling you to this because it's biblical and there is so much needed growth here. We try to create an environment to help this flourish. For example, are you coming to midweek where we have more opportunity to get to know each other? And after you've been here a while, eventually getting plugged into a group so you can get to know other believers in a real way. You can know them and they can know you and therefore we can all obey God by living out His design of this awesome gift of fellowship and accountability. Coming and going and not having people know you and not allowing this kind of thing to to thrive is not God's will for His people. So lean in. Get to know people. Spend time in in fellowship and, and invite this in. Welcome this good gift. Some are simply not living this out. Come and go and that's that. Some are agreeing with the idea, but when the time comes to receive the admonishment, they're too resistant or they reject it altogether. Who are you to tell me something like that? That's what the world says. Who are you to each his own? All this kind of stuff. But Christians say, what does God's word say? Do you have a Do you have scripture to help me here? Do you have wisdom and maturity that can speak into my situation? Now, praise God. There there are many thriving in this. Praise God. This has been so beautiful to see. But all of us are susceptible to stumbling. So constant seeing it in the word is good for wherever you're at in the spectrum. So we need Christian fellowship and accountability. David needed accountability. He needed someone with God's truth to confront him, to help him see his unrighteousness. And God was so gracious to provide David with that. Do you see God's grace in that? It was the grace of God to bring about an admonishment from someone else. God is gracious in those moments. It surely is God's grace to use his means for our conviction. All glory to God. So David came, not on his own, but through accountability to a place of conviction. Psalm 51.3, For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. It's the statement of a man who, through accountability, came to know conviction. David came to a profound awareness of his sin. His sin. Now the psalm uses three distinct words to describe his sin. In this Psalm 51, the first word is transgressions. And this signifies rebellion. It signifies that all sin is a rebellion against God, the lawgiver. The second word that's used is iniquity. It means perversion, perverted. Our sin and is perverted. It refers to the depravity of our natures. We're not the way we should be in righteousness. And the third word is sin itself. And that means falling short or missing the mark, disobedience to God. We miss God's high mark of perfection, falling short of it the same way an arrow would fall short of a target and end up in the dirt. We're not even on the target. These three words occur through Psalm 51, and they all refer to personal failure, which David emphasizes. David came to a place of real conviction. He agreed with God's truth. This is sin. 
I am one who sins. I, David, have sin. I know my sin. I see my sin. I'm convicted of my sin. Don't misunderstand something here. This is not a general declaration. David is agreeing with God about specifics. My sin is ever before me. There's details there that he sees. My sin is ever before me. I have this sin. I know this sin. I see this sin. I'm convicted of this sin. Christian, don't settle for vague or weak confession. We're tempted to do that a lot. Yeah, I'm a sinner. Oh, okay, I hear you. I'm a sinner. Keep it vague. We don't want to climb into the details of it. we got to be sound in these things. We can't settle for vague confession. Take real responsibility for the details, for the reality of it. See your sin for what it is and how it offends God. Do you care that your sin offends God? Do you care that your sin, Christian, sent Christ to the cross? It hung Him there. Our sin, my sin, your sin. Do you care? Do you, do you deeply care? This is so important. Our sin offends a loving God, and that should be so heavy to us. Perhaps going, oh man, I came for some encouragement. This is pretty heavy. We have to realize our sin is so grievous to the perfection and holiness of God. Do we care? Do we care? Are we just going along our way for a build me up and a pat on the back? Do we care the holiness of God? See your sin for what it is and how it offends God. Let us be genuine in conviction. Oh, I need this. We need this. I need this. I sin too much. And I lack too full of a conviction for that sin. How many days do I go throughout the day not even realizing the things that I'm doing against the Lord? That's not okay. It's not about carrying a guilt with us, but it's an awareness of the sin that offends the Lord unto repentance, as we're going to be looking at here. We cannot lack full conviction for sin. As if this is not weighty enough, note something else, church. Let's be very clear about something. Confession, that's what we're seeing here. He's confessed. I'm a sinner. I've sinned. It's before me. It's admitting specific sin. And repentance, though, is the taking of steps. What honors God? The actual new path. These are two different things. It's possible for someone to confess sin, admit to it. Yeah, yeah, I did that. You're right, I did that. I see that that's wicked. I see that offends God. But then not actually follow through with real repentance. Repentance always includes confession. But confession doesn't always, unfortunately, include Repentance. Repentance always includes confession, but confession does not always include repentance. It's possible for someone to see and confess their sin, to admit to it, but not actually follow through with real repentance. We know this. We do this for the married in the room with our spouses. Okay, I see how I failed you, and the next day you're doing the same thing again. There's no new course. But how much more with the Lord and our sin... There is a real temptation in this. At times, in our weakness and pride, we come to a place of being willing to confess. We're willing to admit it. Okay, yes. But then we refuse to actually see through a God-honoring repentance. We refuse to take up a new course 
the right action needed. I pray to the Lord, Lord, do not let us do that. Don't let us stop short. Have us be diligent in seeing through repentance. This is big stuff, church. This is so important. David wasn't looking merely to confess his sin and move on the man that he was on the same course he was on. No, he needed, he knew he needed mercy and transformation. He knew true repentance was needed. Change was in order. So let's see this now. Back to verses 1 and 2. In Psalm 51, in light of his sin that he became aware of, he penned this, starting in verse 1, David pleads for mercy and for forgiveness. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. We saw in our Psalm 130 sermon that this is not a presumption of mercy and forgiveness. An elect of God knows that they deserve nothing good from God. But mercy and forgiveness and redemption are found in the work of the Messiah, the person and work of the Messiah in Christ alone. So David is not pleading with God out of some self-assumed self-worth or entitlement. I'm entitled to forgiveness. I'm confessing it, so forgive me. Many do that in our day and age. Praying to God like he's merely fire insurance or a genie at their command. No, not David. He knows he deserves nothing good from God, but he can find it in God's goodness. Because God is steadfast in love, abundant in mercy. He is merciful, merciful on the basis of the Messiah. God is steadfast in love and abundant in mercy. Amen? David was brought to conviction through... God's means of peer accountability, so he pleads with our gracious God. He confesses. Verses 1 through 6 together now. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach wisdom in the secret heart. This is serious confession here. This is a remorseful, sorrowful, convicted man needing grace. In the details of his confession here, let's consider a few things. Again, in all of our verses, we we could consider much more, but there's not time in this one sermon. Let's look at a few things. Notice in verse 4, he says, Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. You might find this interesting or odd. Against you only have I sinned. He committed adultery. He committed murder. And he caused many other horizontal issues. How could he say, against God only have I sinned? Surely he sinned grievously against others. 
Now, in thinking this way, we might be exposing a small view of God and an insufficient view of our sin. Verse 4 is not a denial of his grievous offense to others. Rather, it is a realization that all sin is first and ultimately an affront to God. Charles Spurgeon put it this way, all his wrong doing centered, culminated, and came to a climax at the foot of the divine throne. To injure our fellow men is sin, mainly because in doing so we violate the law of God. Husbands, when we don't lead our wives well, when we don't love them like Christ loved the church, as Scripture calls us to, our sin against them is first and ultimately an affront to God. Wives, when you don't submit to your husband in everything, support and love him as Scripture calls you to, your sin against them is first and ultimately an affront to God. Children and youth, when you don't honor your father and mother as Scripture calls you to, your sin against them is first and ultimately an affront to God. On and on. We need to see the reality. John Gill said, All sin, though committed against fellow creature, being a transgression of the law, is against the lawgiver, and indeed begins at the neglect or contempt of his commands. When we do wrong to others, it is because we are breaking God's law, his perfect plan and design. It's an affront to him. In this way, David rightly confesses to God, Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. He knows the perfection, holiness, and glory of the one true God. He knows his law. He knows his sin is first and ultimately an affront to the lawgiver. That is God. Church, when you sin, are you rightly seeing it in relation to God? Not just your peers. We're so quick to look at our peers, our, ourselves, our circumstances. Rather, first and ultimately, see it in light of the righteousness of God. Have a proper sorrow for offending the perfect Lord. Give Him true confession of it. Consider something regarding verse 5 now. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. If you've been around here some time, this should be a familiar passage to you. It's an important doctrine Tied into this one sentence. Here he's referring to his sin nature. He's referring, referencing his guilt and depravity. And that he received it through his mother and father tracing back to Adam. You could read this wrongly as a form of an excuse. Like, yeah, yeah I sinned. But behold, I, I'm, I was a sinner since conception. I'm just doing what's in accord with my fallen nature. I'm a victim here. Don't you see that? But that's actually the opposite of what is happening in David's heart and in his confession. What we are seeing in all of this is that he has a right view of his depravity and his wickedness. And he affirms this view in rightly tying it to the core issue. To truly admit we who are sinners, to truly admit who we are in our depravity is to take responsibility. 
He is saying, I sin because I'm sinful. There is no excuse for me. I am a sinner. I know I am a sinner. I've always been a sinner. I am confessing that this was not just a one-off or rare situation. No, I have a major problem here. I did this because I am a guilty sinner. It is truly evidence of my fallen nature. He's saying, yeah, this is sin, real sin, grievous sin, but there's, there's a huge problem here. It's in my core since conception, and I'm in need of God. He add to it, verse 6, Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being. So he's saying, I'm a sinner, and you delight in truth. I'm a corrupted I'm corrupted as a fallen man, but you, God, delight in truth in the inward being. Therefore, I am not up to your standards, God. You delight in truth in the inward being, not depravity. But some good news comes in. Verse 6 continues. And you teach wisdom in the secret heart. Where there should be truth, where there should be no depravity, God teaches truth. Teaches wisdom. David believes that God is teaching him truth concerning his own sin and sin nature, which David had not perceived rightly before. Before the peer accountability, the means that God used, he was not perceiving rightly or fully his own sin, the specific sin or a sin nature. After accountability was used by God, David now rightly seeing and declaring things to be as bad as they are in himself, in light of God's truth. God is causing this wisdom. This is full-blown confession. This is admittance of sin, specific sin, and even deeper confession of how wicked his fallen flesh is. Full-blown confession. In light of his sin, in light of his fallen nature, he knows he needs God. And God's grace before he can move forward. David turns now from confession of sin and his depravity, not yet to action, but to a plea for mercy. Verses 7-9, through Purge me with hyssop, that I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you've broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. Blot out all of my iniquities. These verses have a type, anti-type thing going on. That means they point to Christ and amazing gospel truths. These verses declare awesome things about the Christ to come. If we had time, we'd unpack them. God's word is so rich of truth and eternal wealth of truth and glory. But to stay on track, what we see here is that David knows he needs to be cleansed of his sin guilt. He knows he needs a record of perfection. He knows he needs a redeemer. He knows he needs forgiveness through that one redeemer. He knows he needs God and his grace before he can move forward. This is Christianity. We don't think, feel, or act rightly apart from God's work of effective grace upon us and in us. This is Christianity. We don't move forward in righteousness apart from God's work of effective grace upon us and in us. Utterly dependent on God. By no works of our own are things made right and salvation had and so on. That's Christianity. We are utterly dependent on God. 
We bring nothing to the situation but our sin. We need forgiveness. We need grace. We need the only one who provides that, Christ Jesus. David knows. So he turns from confession of sin and his depravity, not yet to action, but to a plea for grace. This was the primary focus of the last sermon that I preached, the sermon on Psalm 130. So we will not restate everything now, but it builds on that sermon. Don't let us miss the significance of this, though, this morning. There is no hope for David for this song, for you or for I or anyone else, apart from the forgiveness and grace and power found only in God through the person and work of Christ do not take our brevity on this point to supply, imply insignificance in this. No, the, the gospel is our only hope. It is our everything our, for confession, repentance, forgiveness, grace, redemption, reconciliation, eternal life. Listen again to the Psalm 130 sermon for a whole sermon on that point. But we must move on. Now, the, we, we really begin to see the action confessed he sought God's grace and now we're looking for change here repentance remember we said is change we see the action of repentance the rest of the passage he's confessed sought God's forgiving grace now he looks towards the needed change see for example verses 10 through 17 he pleads out he pleads to God create in me a clean heart O God renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore me to the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will re- return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise for you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it, but you will not be pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Church, David is not satisfied with mere confession. He is seeking to live out repentance. He is not saying, I confess, now forgive me so I can go on my way. No, he's saying things must be different with me moving forward. I must be renewed and have a new course. This all begins with a plea for cleansing. David wants to be changed, get this, from the inside out. He's not looking for temporary fixes. Or worse yet, hypocrisy, a Pharisee-type outward-only whitewashing. Just tell me what to do and I'll do it. He knows he needs to be cleansed from the inside out. He truly wants to be changed, real change. He wants to actually be sanctified. He wants God to sanctify him, truly. He doesn't want to put on an act to just move on in life. See how his prayer is a plea that acknowledges his utter dependency on God if he is to have any of the things he's asking for. Create in me a clean heart. Oh God, renew a right spirit within me. David wants to be changed from the inside out. So important. 
Let's not skip that in our repentance, in our confession, our repentance. We must see another righteous change. He wants real, unhindered fellowship with God. He knows his sin has caused a breakdown. He wants what sin in Adam and in himself broke down and tore apart. He wants God. Verse 11, Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Church, do you want God? Do you want God? You prove what you want in how you see and repent of your sin, turning to Him and His ways. God is the ultimate prize. He is the treasure. He is all our hearts truly need and should desire. I pray that we're here for God. I pray that He is the desire of all of our hearts. Do you want God? It's so easy to get caught up in habits and the happenings. Are we here for God? We hear out of some religious duty, if I just go to church, I'll feel better about myself, or maybe God will give me credit in the end. No. Are we here for God? In God is joy, true joy. Verse 12, restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. We need the joy of the Lord. We need God to cause us to be ones that willingly glorify Him. So this plea is for inward renewal, a pure heart, and for restoration unto the producing of real change, a new course. Repentance is turning away from sin, turning instead to true righteousness in word, heart, and deed. Church, there is real action required in repentance. Real action in view. Repentance is not biblical without a change. Heart, word, and deed. A true change in righteousness. As David proclaims, and as his repentance continues, the new course includes more outward action fueled from the inner change. Namely, a commitment to teach others about God and His mercy and declare His praise. He says things like, I will teach transgressors your ways. My tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. My mouth will declare your praise. We covered this as well in our Psalm 130 sermon. The right and needed response to God's grace in our lives is repentance that includes outward declaration of God and His gospel. Church, this must be a part of our response to God's grace. A consistent and confident outward declaration of the gospel and a genuine plea to others to trust in Christ alone. We cannot look to only receive blessing. That's the main point here. We are so tempted to have this all be about us. It cannot end there. We are blessed to glorify God, and a major part of that is us declaring Him to others, seeking to make disciples of Jesus. It's God's design. We've been saved. We know these truths. Teach these things to others. Make disciples of Christ. 
whether our hearers repent and believe or not is something God is sovereign over, but we get the awesome privilege of being truth-tellers, gospel-proclaimers. Those God decreed to redeem, to give eternal life to, will certainly respond to the gospel in God's timing by His power, and they'll be forgiven of guilt and iniquity and be saved. Oh, the joy to be a part of that, be some of the means in preaching the gospel and sharing God's truth and sharing God's truth with one another. And finally, the song closes with a plea for blessing of God's people. Something really important I want us to see in this last part. Verses 18 and 19 says, Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings, the whole burnt offerings. Then bowls will be offered at your altar. Again, there's some type, anti-type things here happening here, pointing us to Christ. But in our limited time, let us see in this portion that repentance includes much concern for others. Repentance is not self-focused in the end. It is for God's glory and it always seeks the good of others. In my role as an elder and for a long time in discipling others, I find myself often saying that our sin, the sin we commit, always affects other people. Whether directly or indirectly, sin always affects others. Slander in or about the church affects others. Pride as a parent affects others. Lying to your friends affects others. And on and on. Even the sins we do in the mind or in private that only God sees but others don't, they affect others, surely. Let us not be mistaken. There are no sins we're doing in the dark that do not affect others. Our sinning affects our testimony to others about God's law. The bottom line is, more than we realize, our sin affects others. With that then, your repentance, my repentance, is not full repentance if it is not seeking to glorify God in doing what is right for others as well. Again, our repentance is not full repentance if it's not seeking to glorify God in by doing what is right for others as well. God makes these kinds of things clear to Christians. His commands are so clear for this kind of Christian activity. Philippians 2, 3-5, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of us look not only to his own interests, but to also the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. A repentant heart should show itself in a humble counting others more significant than one's self. Where your sin affects others, you must do what is needed to reconcile, to build them up, to bless them, even if it costs you much. True repentance, full repentance, pays the cost to be a blessing to others. Church, we see this a lot. We'll confess, okay, we'll repent to God, seek His grace, seek a change, but I'm not so concerned about how it affected others. There's an extra weight to me having to go and deal with how this affected others. That is true repentance that we do that. It pays the cost, whatever it may be, to be a blessing to others. Do you love others like this? 
Are we thinking of others? When you've sinned in repentance, do you do what's needed to love others rightly? Romans 12.10, love one another with a brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. That's huge. Is your heart repentant unto a willingness and action to show honor to others? after we've done so with God. Please do not stop short of our Christian duty to be taking up our cross for God's glory in doing good to others. We must do what is needed to reconcile, to build them up, to bless them, to make right where our offense made problems, on and on, even if it costs us much. Follow our Savior's heart and action while He never sinned nor needed to repent. He did give Himself up for the blessing of others. Gospel-fueled, gospel-motivated repentance. So, we've seen in our psalm a plea for mercy, for forgiveness, a confession of personal sin, a plea for cleansing, a plea for inward renewal, a pure heart. For restoration, producing real change, a new course, a commitment to teach others about God and His mercy and declare His praise, and a concluding plea for the blessing of God's people. Church, let us be sound in faith. Let us be accountable in our walk. Let us be fully repentant. And let us long for God and know Jesus is our all-satisfying joy and treasure. In Christ alone is forgiveness and redemption and eternal life for His glory and our good. In Christ alone are repentant believers reconciled into an eternally secure relationship with God. That is the good news. That is the only way, the true solution to our guilt and sin problem. All praise and honor and glory be to the one true God. Let's pray. Lord, we... convicted by this passage we see David's incredible fall and sin and then we see you cause incredible confession and repentance let it be the blessing that you intended it to be let this passage instruct us And remind us constantly of how we should be seeing our sin and dealing with our sin in light of Christ. Give us a zeal that hates sin and loves you and loves others. Give us a zeal that wants to put off the old self and put on the new in Christ. Give us a zeal to see through repentance fully. Give us a zeal to welcome, ask for, seek out accountability, real accountability. Kill off our pride that says, I don't want to talk to that person. They're going to challenge me. I don't want to receive rebuke. I don't want to receive the scripture they have for me. I just want to do what I'm doing and do it my way. Kill that off in us, Lord cause us to be a people who are joyfully accepting your good gifts the ways you illuminate your truth to cause us to grow in Christ cause Christian repentance in us 
thank you, Lord. It's all because of the work of Christ. We pray because of Christ. Amen.